Chapter 8, Part 2 of Two Years in Oregon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Diane Castillo. Two Years in Oregon by Wallace Nash. Chapter 8, Part 2. A few miles farther on eastward are Fish Lake and Clear Lake. The former merits its name from the abundance of trout from one to three and four pounds in weight. In summer, the water shrinks away to little more than a stream in the middle of a depression which forms the lake, and a growth of rich, succulent grass follows the subsistence of the waters. Clear Lake, some four miles off, is vastly different. It evidently occupies the place of a great and sudden depression of timber-covered country, for, looking down into the deep, clear water, the great firs are seen still standing erect on the bottom, far, far below. Fly-fishing on this lake is wonderfully good. Throw the flies onto the still water, oh! so quietly, and there let them lie motionless. In a moment or two a dim form shines deep down, rising with a quick vibrating motion, and up comes your friend. With a greedy snatch he takes the fly, and bolts downward with it, to be speedily checked and brought to book. Soon begins the descent much more gradual than the ascent, and not so prolonged, since all eastern Oregon is a kind of plateau elevated from one to two thousand feet above sea level. Valleys in Eastern Oregon A stretch of lava bed is soon reached, the acme of desolation, where the road has been painfully worked by crushing down the rugged blocks, or laboriously moving them with levers from the path. Two or three miles carry us across, and then the bunch-grass country begins. Great tussocks of succulent feed for spring and early summer, dried by the hot sun into natural hay for autumn and winter use, afford pasture for countless herds of cattle. Even here there are watercourses and springs a few miles apart. The valleys, namely Deschutes, Crooked River Valley, Ochoco, Beaver Creek, Grindstone Creek, Silver Creek, Harney Lake, and Malheur, stretch in a practically unbroken line across the whole of the remainder of Oregon to the eastern boundary of Snake River. Take Crooked River Valley as a specimen. It varies from one to three miles in width, but is bounded not by steep and rugged hills we are used to in the coast range, but by gently swelling bluffs covered with bunch grass to and over their tops. The valley land is rich and fertile, and wherever cultivated yields abundantly in potatoes, cereals, vegetables, and small fruits of all kinds. Sixty and eighty bushels of oats to the acre is not an unusual crop, and tame grasses take firm hold of the country wherever opportunity is given them. The bunch grass slopes 
with occasional sagebrush scattered among the grass are not to be always set apart for such common use as at present precisely the same character of land has been ploughed up and put into wheat during the last few years round walla walla just north of the northeast corner of oregon and produces forty bushels of wheat to the acre indeed it is from country like this that the great crops of northeastern oregon and washington territory are produced crops yielding a magnificent return if not to the farmer whose enterprise and industry have served to raise them yet to the recently formed transportation company called the oregon railway and navigation company by whose boats plying on the columbia the wheat is carried to portland to be shipped at present these vast stretches of rolling hill and dale are the home of the cattle rancher a strange and wild life a suitable site is fixed on commanding ample water privilege with some valley land nearby to grow sufficient hay and to raise the desired quantity of oats and vegetables here the house is built the lumber being hauled by wagons perhaps fifty or a hundred miles from the mill the rancher's family consists of his wife and children and possibly five or six herdsmen while looking after cattle these men almost live in the saddle horses abound and form as good a source of revenue as cattle in proportion to the capital engaged the eastern oregon horse is taller and bigger boned than the valley horse but naturally his education is not so well attended to and he is apt to be mean and to buck little wrecks his rider and after a bout of bucking in which the horse has not dislodged the man but has shaken up every bone in his body till he is sore all over with a constant jar as the horse comes to the ground all four feet at once after a mighty jump then it is the man's turn driving in the heavy mexican spurs with their rowels two or three inches across the rider starts wildly out and mile after mile the open country is crossed at a hard gallop the herd is soon seen and ridden round and a close lookout is kept to see if any stragglers have joined the band and if the calves and yearlings are all right branding time comes twice a year in spring and autumn when the cattle of a whole stretch of country are driven together separated according to the various ownerships determined by marks and brands in spring come in the eastern buyers who travel through the country collecting a huge drove of perhaps from ten to twenty thousand head the three-year-old steers fetch about fifteen or seventeen dollars a head no wonder the ranchers prosper considering that the cost from calfhood was only that of herding some of the provident ones collect one or two hundred tons of natural hay against the severities of winter it may be that for two or three years the hay will stand unused then comes the stress deep snow will cover the face of the country and lie for weeks too deep for the cattle to live as in ordinary winters on the dry bunch grass protruding from the snow 
or easily reached by scratching a slight covering away. Even an abundant store will not save all, for many of the herd will have taken refuge in distant valleys, or perhaps have retreated far off the whole range in the face of the driving storm. And even those that are found will move very unwillingly from any poor shelter they may have secured toward the life-saving food. The Malheur Reservation there is a large Indian reservation called the Malheur Reserve. The road crosses its southwest corner. These Indians are quiet enough now, but only three years ago there was an outbreak among them. One rancher had built a fine stone house just outside the reservation bounds, and there lived in comfort, surrounded by all the necessities and many of the luxuries of life. He had six or eight thousand head of cattle, and some three hundred horses in his band. One morning a friendly Indian rode up in haste, telling him to get away, as the hostiles were coming to kill them all. Mounting their horses, the rancher and his wife took to flight. They looked back from the hilltop to see the flames and smoke rising from their comfortable home, telling how narrow had been their escape. A hurried ride of fifty miles took them to safe refuge, and the speedy repulse of the Indians, and their being driven once again within their own boundaries, enabled the rancher to rebuild his house and restore once more his household goods. This road was built by men who were sent out from Albany, and spent years in the work, rifles by their side, for the country fourteen years ago was not the safe domain it has now become. The first idea was to use the pass through the Cascades, which is the lowest and safest in Oregon, so far as I can learn, to build a road to open the plains of eastern Oregon to the Willamette Valley. After a good deal of the work had been accomplished, a suggestion was made to the owners of the road that if they would undertake to extend it clear across the state to the Idaho boundary, a distance from Albany of some 450 miles by the necessary deviations from a straight line, a land grant might probably be procured from Congress to aid the work. Whatever may be said of the general policy of granting the national lands to corporations to aid wagon road and railroad enterprises, there may surely be cases where the effect is not only to secure the execution of the work, but also to encourage the settling up of a district and the consequent increase of the population and wealth of a state. Here was the state of affairs in eastern Oregon prior to 1866. A vast country, adapted for the gradual settlement and ultimate habitation, of a prosperous race, was lying at the mercy of a few roving bands of Indians who made the lives and property of even casual travelers their speculation and sport. What was the value, then, of all that country? Could any purchaser for it have been then found at even a few cents an acre? Building of the Road the projectors of the road took their lives in their hands when they ventured forth to work. They risked themselves, their horses and equipments. 
every pound of food consumed had to be brought in wagons from their starting point. As they progressed, their danger and difficulty increased with every mile they traversed, and the last section of the road was built by men who had suffered themselves to be snowed in and shut off from families and friends, and to give up every chance of succor and distress, that the work might not stand still. And it was no light work, even judged by us who travel the road at ease and have hardly a passing glance for the rocky grade, the deep cutting, the ponderous lava block, the huge black trunk. How appalling must the undertaking have appeared to those who had first to face the dangers and difficulties of a mountain chain, to plan for and survey out the most favorable route among heavy timber and rocky precipice, beside rushing waters and through deep gorges, and then across those wide and then silent plains, where the timid antelope ranged by day and the skulking wolf by night made solitude hideous with his melancholy howl. No roadside farms to welcome them, no little towns to mark, as now the stages of their journey, but farther and farther into the wilderness, till four hundred miles lay between the workers and the valley homes they had left months before. And this was no wealthy corporation, which has but to announce its readiness to receive and dollars are poured into its lap by a public hungry for dividends until it has to cry, Hold enough! Here were no regiments of yellow workmen trained to labor in many a ditch and grade, but citizens of Oregon who desired to build up their state, who believed the records of their fellows as to the miles of country that could be forced to contribute their quota of productions if but the way were opened in and out, who, having themselves prospered in the sound and moderate way in which Oregon encourages her children, were ready to risk what they had gained in a cause they knew was good. These men combined their energies to the common end. It was an enterprise which roused and maintained the kindly interest of all, the working parties in the Cascade Range were followed up by the teams of those who desired the first choice of settlement in the promised land beyond. By the time the last great log that barred the pass was reached, a long string of wagons stood waiting its removal. While the long saws were plied and then the levers brought, all stood in expectation. Willing hands lent their eager aid. The great wooden mass rolled sullenly away, and the tide of settlement poured through the gap. Between that day in 1867 and 1880, upward of 5,000 wagons have made the journey, and to the honor of the original locators be it said, all without accident arising from the road. The first few years all went merry as a marriage bell. The road naturally followed the fertile valleys, and small blame to the road makers if, 
having the whole country before them, they chose the smoothest and cheapest route. No man will climb a hill and cut his way along its side if he can find good level ground at the bottom. The roadmakers were entitled under their congressional grant to alternate mile-square sections in a wide belt on either side of their road. The intervening sections were, of course, open to settlement by the construction of the road. The open valley sections were soon seized on and a band of settlements justified, even so soon the principle of the road grant. Squatters but to many men in this world, and Oregon has her share, the descriptive motto is not, labor is sweet, and we have toiled, but the antithesis, other men have labored, let us enter into the fruits of their labor. So squatters entered with the legitimate settler, or close on his heels, and took possession of many a section of the road company's land taking the chances, as they would express it, of something happening to help them to hold. To aid matters, these men fenced across the road near their houses and carried the road round on the hillsides above their farms. The settlers were not slow to follow so promising an example, and to have the benefit of the bottomland through which the road ran, they also pushed the road away up the hills. On more than one occasion the road company sent and had these fences removed and opened the original road afresh. But travelers did not aid them, for here came in a trait of American character I have often noticed, namely unwillingness to insist on strict right against their neighbors, and a readiness to make any shift or agree to and use any detour when to keep the old straight road would involve a question. So the valley road got disused in places and travel went round by the hills. Next the squatters bethought them that they might in time upset the road grant and get good title to their neighbor's vineyard. So they sent on a petition to Washington, alleging that the road had never been made, that there was no road at all, that there had been a colossal fraud. But the matter was investigated and discovery made that the United States authorities had ceased to have any jurisdiction so long ago as 1866. Still, those who were agitating thought something might be made of it. So, somehow or other, the Secretary of the Interior, Mr. Carl Schurz, was induced to interfere, not deterred by the knowledge that the Land Department had declined to act twelve months before. And so, a year after the squatter's complaint had been refused, an agent was sent out to report. He was well armed with the assailant's stories in advance, and he need be a man of super-excellent straightforwardness and hardihood unless he, too, could see something in it. In this case, the phoenix was not discovered, 
and the eyes, ears, and common sense of hundreds of men who knew the road well were outraged by a report that no road existed or had been made except for about sixty miles at the western end and that the road if road it could be called was a mere wagon track capable of use only for a short time and under exceptionally favorable circumstances it was of course assumed that at so great a distance from headquarters a hostile report would end matters and that all the advantages hoped for by the squatters and by any and all who had espoused their cause would be forthwith enjoyed we have yet to learn that the American Congress will consent to be made parties to such an outrageous conspiracy, to cast an infamous slur on the characters of American citizens who ventured much in an undertaking for the public good, in violation of plain and acknowledged principles of law, to hamper and delay an enterprise relying on the title gained in 1871 and quietly enjoyed for ten years. Harney Lake Valley The largest of the valleys through which this road passes is Harney Lake Valley, only about 80 miles from the eastern boundary of the state, which will receive fuller description farther on. End of chapter 8, part 2 Recording by Diane Castillo